Well, once again, we're turning this morning to Philippians chapter 3. So Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read some verses uh, of this chapter. I welcome you all in the Savior's name, and trust the Lord will bless and meet with us today as we continue on our study uh, in this little epistle. So Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read just some verses uh, from verse 17. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things." Amen. We'll end at verse 19, and we trust the Lord will bless the public reading of His Word. This morning we return to Philippians 3, and we have seen from this chapter already that Paul aspires to know more of and to be more like Christ. The aim, mark, and goal of his Christian experience is what we might say outside of himself. He was not preoccupied with himself, but he was preoccupied with becoming like Jesus Christ. And he tells us that he was striving, and after this, with all his energy and endeavor, he was stretching and straining every fiber of his being uh, towards the finish line that he might receive the prize, full conformity to Christ, even Christ himself. And he is writing here to encourage believers in the manner of their growth and grace, because he's interested in their spiritual progression. He does not want them to stagnate. He wants them to not think that they have arrived, but that there's always room for improvement, room for development, further sanctification. There's always more of God to know and more of Christ to be like. And as a means to stimulate their growth and to encourage them to keep on running the Christian race, he sets before them three types of Christians in verses 15 to 19. Mature Christians, model Christians, and misleading Christians. Now, the last time we looked at the first two types of Christians, mature and model Christians, and we noticed that it's God's desire for us to go on to Christian maturity, that not only the fruit of the Spirit would bud in our life, but it would blossom and that it would ripen. And since it is God's desire that we go on to maturity, there is therefore a rebuke for those who remain in spiritual infancy. God desires us to go on. It's also a cause for concern if there is no growth, if there is no development, and should lead us to ask the question, well, why not? Is the root, the living root of the matter, not in such an individual? Now, for our maturing we noted that there are certain things that the Holy Spirit uses. There is, of course, the Word of God, there is prayer, there is trial, and there are godly examples. And that led us on to consider model Christians. Paul was one of those model Christians, but he wasn't the only one. There's no spirit of pride in the apostle. He's already told them that he hadn't attained absolute perfection in a sense in which he was absolutely like the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather, he was telling 
Believers, you know, do as I do. Forget those things that are behind and reach forth which, to those things which are before and press toward the mark. The way Paul lived meant that he could set his life before others as a model to follow if they were to become that for which they were apprehended for, holy, holy Christians. That's why God stepped into our lives. That's why he arrested us in our mad career of our sin, that he would make us holy. Now, in contrast to these good and godly examples, the apostle paints a much different picture in verses 18 and 19. Verses which are in parentheses. It's as if the thought of these good examples have put into Paul's mind bad examples, the negative aspect of the same teaching, and he adds them in here to strengthen his point. This is what he says in verses 18 and 19, "'For many walk of whom I have told you often, and I tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ.'" whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And the last time I mentioned these Christians as misleading Christians, and of course, Christians should be in speech marks. If the Philippian believers followed their bad example, well then most certainly they would be misled. They would be turned out of the way of holiness and a pathway that pursues likeness to Jesus Christ. And just as there are good and godly examples for us to follow, there are also worldly and bad examples that we must avoid, and Paul highlights them for us here. Now this morning we're going to consider these verses 18 and 19, not under the heading misleading Christians, but a stronger, more condemning label that the apostle uses himself enemies of the cross. That's what we're considering this morning, enemies of the cross. So firstly, we have the enemy's description. Let's read verse 18 again. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and I tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul here explains why he is commanding the saints to follow good examples. For there are many who do not walk in a godly manner, and he describes them here as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, who is Paul talking about? Obviously, there are many people outside the visible church who do not profess to be Christian, who are avowed enemies of the Word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would quite rightly be described as the enemies of the cross. But this isn't who Paul has in mind. The apostle is referring to those who profess to be Christians, those who have entered in and joined themselves to the visible church. These are people who say they're friends of Christ, who advocate Christ, who identify with Christ, whose names are on the church roll. Now, I don't think when Paul's speaking here of the many that he's referring specifically to the Philippian church. 
For by internal evidence of this book, it seemed to be a good and a godly congregation. And he doesn't address this particular subject to any specific member there. But there are many of these types of misleading Christians about in Paul's day as they are in our day. And the believers there, they must be on their guard and not follow their pattern of living. For it would lead them astray, it would divert them from the mark and the prize which they are to strive after. Now though Paul describes them here as the enemies of the cross, it is not that they deny Christ. It's not that they deny that He was born. It's not that they deny His life. It's not that they deny that He was crucified upon a cross. It's not that they hate the wood of the cross. But rather their manner of living was a denial of the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What He intended by His atoning sacrifice. And in that way they were enemies. Their life was a denial of what Christ accomplished and intended by His sacrifice. Now, there are two types of professed Christians which might be described as enemies of the cross. There are those who add to the cross work of Christ. Paul has already dealt with in this chapter with the Judaizers, who were seeking to add the Jewish ceremonial law to salvation, They insisted in faith in Christ plus circumcision. And that was really a denial of and an attack upon the sufficiency of what Christ accomplished at the tree. Now we still have these types of misleading Christians today. Oh, they will say that they will believe in Christ. They will not deny His deity. They will speak of His sacrifice. They will mention things like grace and mercy, but certain things, rites and rituals, must be done by the individual if they are to be saved. And of course, the greatest example of such misleading Christians is the Roman Catholic Church. They're not the only one. Why they are not openly avowed enemies of the cross, like we might say the atheist. They are, by their theology, opponents of the cross. The reenactment of Christ's sacrifice in the Mass. Well, that's an assault on the atonement's sufficiency. It's also in a direct attempt, attack upon the revelation of Scripture that tells us Christ offered one sacrifice for sin forever. And Rome, sadly, has led many astray by her teaching She is an opponent, she is an enemy of the cross. Though professing to be Christian. And that was spoken a little this morning in the Bible class. But these are not the misleading or the types of misleading Christians that I believe that Paul is speaking of here considering verse 19. I believe that these were people who say that they are Christians, and yet their immoral life stands at enmity to the cross of Christ. For He died to make men holy, in order that they might not be conformed to this world, but that they might be transformed and conformed into the image of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. The Son of God came, the Son of God died, in order that He might save us from our sin, that He might lift us out of our sin and not leave us in our sin. And Paul surely had in mind professed Christian Greeks of Epicurean tendencies, the libertines, the sensualists. Who are the Epicureans? Well, the Epicureans, well, they had a school of philosophy which taught that the satisfaction of physical appetites was the highest aim of man. They had taken Christian liberty and they had used it as a license to sin. It was a swing away from legalism into antinomianism, lawlessness with respect to Christian living. Well, they were people who failed to understand that when the Word of God says that we are not under the law, we are under grace, it is with respect to our justification. Because Christ has come, He's fulfilled the law, He's obtained for us a justifying righteousness, but we are still under the law with respect to Christian living and duty. And here were these people, they had taken Christian liberty. Oh, I'm saved, I'm washed in the blood, I'm no longer under the law, and therefore I can do as I please. And this is the people that Paul is highlighting here that were not to follow their example. Now, we have many of these misleading Christians about today who have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. And Paul speaks of them here as individuals who walked. And that expression is used in the New Testament often concerning the Christian life, a walk, how we walk. And it speaks really of our manner of living, our daily conduct our pattern of life. Matthew Henry, he says, and he makes this point that we need to watch the walk and not to talk of professors, for it is their walk that is a sure evidence of what they are than their profession. Now, sadly, Paul says here that there are not a few that walk this way, but there are many. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself warned about, these types of people. In Matthew chapter 7, turn to Matthew chapter 7, and He speaks of the many, the many who live in this way, of the many who say they identify with Christ, that they advocate Christ, that they're laboring for Christ, and yet He speaks about the many. Matthew chapter 7 and the verse 21. And the Lord says there, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. They work iniquity. There was their walk. There was their manner of living. They were practicers of lawlessness and lived in sin, though they claimed to be the Lord's. You know, that type of living, that type of thinking can creep into, it has crept into churches where the cross of Christ is even preached in all its fullness and all its glory. 
where people, they think maybe you have thought like this. You know, it doesn't really matter how I live. It doesn't really matter if there is growth. No holy living, no following on and obedience to the Lord's commands. Sure, the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin, and, and God is gracious. Such a person is a living denial of the cross work of Jesus Christ, and therefore they are an enemy of the cross. Now, I know we can think of other places outside of these four walls that preach that. Well, you can pray your prayer. You can have Christ as your Savior, not as your Lord. You can live as you please, do as you like, and you're still there for heaven. But we're thinking about who we are this morning. I preach to who is before me. Has that thinking come into your mind? You know, I can live as I like. There's no growth. There's no development. There's no obedience to the command of God. But the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. And God is gracious. That's a denial. A denial of what Christ intended when he died upon the cross of of Calvary. And therefore, this is such a a hard, a strong term that Paul uses here, an enemy, an enemy of the cross. Not just a little carnal, a little worldly, nothing really there, prayed to prayer, an enemy of the cross. This is who Paul is warning these believers at Philippi against. He tells them, he tells them that he had warned them about them before, even when he was with them, and he warned them with tears. He tells them, even now weeping. You see, Paul was moved with compassion and emotion, and he demonstrates the true spirit by which we should speak of such things. You know, what is it that ought to cause Christians to weep? It's this, there's those that sit amongst us under a false profession, under a cloak of deceit, and they think it's well with their soul, and it's not. And there are reasons why we ought to weep, because their soul is headed for destruction. They'll be horrified on the day of judgment when they find it to be a sham, and it also gives the enemies of the gospel cause to speak with reproach. And that's why Paul is weeping. Isn't that what we hear from the world today? If that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do it. I thought that person was a Christian. You know, what's the difference between me and them? And often there is no difference. And that's why Paul is weeping. It's doing harm to the cause of Christ. You know about all the issues today. And you hear the radio station, and they get a Christian that comes along that agrees with it. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. And that grieves the soul. It grieves the heart when you have clerics and clergy and ministers, and they're, oh, well, we're for that God's love. Just accept that. Do away with the law. Do away with holy living. Live as you like. Pray the prayer. And it does such harm to the gospel of Christ. But what about you? Is there a marked difference in your life and my life? Do we give the cause or the enemies of the gospel a cause to speak reproachfully of the gospel? 
Albert Barnes, he said this, it is because of false professors that so much in injury is done to true religion. It's not by infidels and scoffers and blasphemers so much that injury is done. It is by the unholy lives of its professed friends, the church's professed friends, the worldliness, inconsistency, and lack of the proper spirit among those who identify with the church. Paul was warning the Philippian believers and us not to follow those types of misleading Christians. And he's a similar warning in Romans 16. Turn to Romans 16, 17, and 18. It's the same warning. Romans 16, 17, and 18. And he says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good work, words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of of the simple. There are many who masquerade as the friends of the cross, but they are the enemies of the cross, as Paul describes them. And the reason why is because their life declares them to be such. And that brings me to my second point, because we have the enemy's description. They're the enemies of the cross. But then we have the enemy's distinctness. Now, back when we were considering verse 3 of Philippians 3, we noted the distinctives of the genuine Christian. Well, in verse 19 here, we have the distinctives of the enemy of Christ, or the counterfeit Christian, the false professor. And we read in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now, I'm going to leave the opening words whose end is destruction for later. But we notice here three distinctives of the one who is the enemy of the cross, of the counterfeit Christian. Firstly, we notice their deity. Their deity, whose God is their belly. Now, this is not primarily concerned with gluttony, as we might think. This is about desire. The word belly it's used here as a figure of speech in John chapter 7 and the verse 38, the same word is used. It says, He that believeth in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And there it speaks of the center or the heart of man. A distinctive of one who is an enemy of the cross is that they are self-seeking, they are self-centered. These are people whose God is their own worldly desire. Instead of serving God, they are consumed with gratifying their own fleshly and physical desires. They serve themselves. They make gods out of their own fleshly desires. This is manifest in such things as gluttony and drunkenness and greed and, and sexual immorality and slothfulness, all these things. Their goal is themselves. It's in themselves. Remember Paul, he's preoccupied, his Christian experience, it's, it's outside of himself. The end of it, that is. It's Christ, to be like Christ, to, to win Christ. But here the goal of these individuals is themselves. It's live to, live to please self and not God. Their philosophy is this, I'm going to pursue and do those things that bring me pleasure. Now it may have been that Paul was a well-educated man. 
He was referring here to a well-known Athenian poet, Euripides. And this is what he said, I offer sacrifice to no god but myself, and to this belly of mine, the greatest of divinities. See, humanistic philosophy, it states that the goal of life is to have all my wants fulfilled, all my desires accomplished, all my needs met. Man is the center, and his happiness is the chief end of his existence. And the liberal presentation of the gospel is steeped in this kind of thinking, that God is simply a means by which man can be happy, that that's the chief end of all religion, man and his happiness. Now, while the Christian church has traditionally and scripturally taught of the need to mortify the, the, the desires of the flesh and to die daily, to self in the pursuit of Christ-likeness, for those whose God is their belly, well, those things do not matter. As long as their needs are met, as long as their desires are gratified. And that really has the marks of Gnosticism all over it. What's Gnosticism? Well, it's a philosophy... Basically, you'd sum it up like this. Spirit is good, matter is evil. And since the body, which is matter, is intrinsically and essentially evil, well, then it doesn't matter what you do with it. You can be a glutton, you can be a drunkard, you can be a homosexual, you can be a fornicator, you can be an adulterer, you can just live in sloth and all the rest of it, and it really doesn't matter. Do you know that type of dualism is seen in contemporary Christianity today, which has that at its heart. Antinomianism. doesn't really matter what I do with my body, because God has saved my soul, and therefore I can live, I can do as I please. As I said, I prayed to prayer. And they do just that. They do as they please, and they continue in their sin. They are their own God. And their chief end is their own happiness. Another distinctive is not only their deity, but their disgrace. It tells us there in verse 19, and whose glory is in their shame. These people are freely identified by their sins, all the while claiming to be Christians. They are proud of the things of which they should be ashamed of. Does that not sound familiar? We see that attitude in the world today, don't we? Instead of being ashamed of immorality and immoral acts, the world that glories in it. And we have a reference which parallels glorying and shame in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul, he's describing a pagan culture, godless culture. And he says of them, Ephesians 4 and verse 19, who being past past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. There is no longer a feeling of any shame or disgrace at what they do. Rather, they're indulging in it. They're promoting it. They have pride over it. But remember, Paul is speaking here of professing Christians who identify with Christ. Not speaking of the world. He's speaking of Christians. Again, you get all sorts of 
uh, misleading Christians like this whose lives are contrary to what the Word of God teaches. There are people who have shown no repentance, absolutely absolutely no repentance in their life. And there's no change in their life, nor do they see the need for change and they think that by, by, by living like that and believing that, it shows they have a greater understanding of grace. Therefore, they continue in sin, and as such, they are boasting in the very thing that is a shame to them. Puritan Thomas Boston said of those whose glory is in their shame, they love what they should hate and hate what they should love, Joy in what they ought to mourn for and mourn for what they ought to rejoice in. Glory in their shame and are ashamed of their glory. Abhor that which they should desire and desire that which they should abhor. In his letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5 and verses 11 and 10, you turn back again. Paul, he writes Ephesians 5, 11 and 10, he says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done in secret. We are to avoid such misleading Christians. Don't company with them. Don't place ourselves under their teaching because they will turn us aside in the Christian race. Another distinction, the third distinction, is their distraction. Verse 19, Philippians 3 says, who mind earthly things. Mind earthly things. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, part two. And that covers Christiana's journey to the celestial city. She is taken into the interpreter's house, and there before her there is a scene in which there is a man standing with a muckrake. That man is unaware of the one above him who is offering in exchange for his rake a celestial crown. And the interpreter sets this man before Christiana as an example of one whose vision is fixed on the carnal instead of spiritual things. That man typifies one who does not see him who is invisible and does not Esteem the riches of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt because their intent gaze is on earthly things. They are individuals who are distracted by the trinkets and the bubbles of this world. Their focus is on the here and now and not in the matters of eternity. They pursue material prizes instead of that prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The mark of such individuals is that they find their delight in the things of this world and not God. However, James tells us in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And that's the same language that Paul uses. In the Apostle John, his first epistle, we read there, chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. They are enemies of the cross. For by the cross, Paul tells us in Galatians 6, the true Christian is crucified unto the world. 
and the world unto the Christian. It's dead to the true Christian. And therefore, they are enemies of the crosswork of Christ if their intense gaze and focus and energy and enjoyment and delight is all found in the things of this world. There are individuals who do not have the mind of Christ. They do not have a renewed mind, but they mind the things of this world. The exact opposite of what Paul taught in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3. This is what he said, If ye be risen with Christ, well, first of all, you have to die. You're going to be risen. Death to the world. And the world is dead to me. If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Paul is pointing out the types of Christians that we are to avoid, that we are not to follow, if we are to make spiritual progress, and they're distinguished by their deity, their disgrace, and their distraction. These distinctives, along with the distinctives of the genuine Christian found in verse 3, are the things which we are to measure our profession by. That's what you're to do this morning. You know, you're better doing it now. You're better being honest now than to stand before God and find that all you had was a sham, an empty profession. So the enemy's description, the enemy's distinctives, finally, briefly this morning, the enemy's destiny brings us back to the the words at the start of verse 19 in Philippians 3, whose end is destruction. Such individuals who say they belong to the Lord, but live in a manner which denies the end for which Christ died and for which sinners are saved, such an individual is heading for destruction. That's the opposite of salvation and stands in contrast with what Paul goes on to say in verses 20 and 21, which is the end of the true Christian. Now the word end here, whose end is destruction, It means the culmination or the outcome of a development, an obtained objective. The word is never used in the New Testament as a chronological end, as if something comes to a stop. It speaks really of a goal achieved or a realization. And so the one who has lived as an enemy of a cross, though they might not even have realized it, they will find that they will receive exactly the outcome of what you might expect to be the result of such a life. They will be under the eternal wrath of God. And the word destruction helps us to understand that because it doesn't mean annihilation. It doesn't mean uh, to be wiped out or to be out of existence. But what it means, it means the termination or the end of all those things that make human existence worthwhile. This Greek word for destruction, it's translated as perdition in Philippians 1 and the verse 28. And you know, that tells me 
That tells me that the same hell will hold the fierce persecutor and the false professor. Mere professions can save none. And that's why Paul warns these Philippians against following such people that are on the wrong path. Now, it might seem to them they are on the right path. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Why would you follow someone? Why would you pattern your life upon an individual who is on the wrong path, whose destiny is hell? You wouldn't do it. If you want to run well and finish well in the Christian race. As I close this morning, I ask in the light of Scripture, are you an emissary of the cross of Christ, displaying in your life the power of the cross? Or are you an enemy of the cross, denying the power of the cross? If this describes you this morning, an enemy of the cross, I urge you. I urge you to embrace Jesus Christ, to fall before His cross. Become a soldier of that cross, proclaiming the glories of it, not only by your lit, but by your life, and how you live. And press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Those of us who are the Lord's, we are to take these things to heart. These are individuals we are to avoid. Yea, we are to even weep over because their end is destruction. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame and as all they do is mine the things that will pass away. Let us press on and let us take these things that Paul has outlined for us in order to do it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus and the prize is won. Let's bow in prayer and may he bless his word to our hearts for his own name's sake. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we confess there is much to turn our heads in running this race, not least misleading Christians who by their lives deny the power of the cross and are such our enemies of the cross work of Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us not to add anything to the cross and help us not to take anything from the cross. We thank Thee for the sufficiency of the atonement that Christ made. And we thank Thee there is power in His precious blood not only to cleanse us from all sin, but to deliver us from the power of sin. Lord, we pray that this will be true in our lives, that we would be soldiers of the cross, lifting it high by our words and by our deeds and glorying in it. We thank thee, Lord, for the instruction in your word. And we pray that we will lay these things up in our hearts and do what thou hast commanded. Lord, we pray once again for the meeting tonight. We pray that you'll bring in many.
Lord, that you would speak very powerfully to their heart. Help the boys and girls that they, as they would take part. And remember them too, that they might begin to run the race, that they will attain the prize. Hear our prayer. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of thy people, both now and forevermore. For this I pray in Jesus' precious and his lovely name. Amen.